HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm Yohosaki Katema, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cook guests. And my guests today are JT Wong and George Padilla, the executive chef and the co-founding partner and co-owners of Rule of Thirds in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, New York. George and JT met at Okonomi, a charming Japanese restaurant in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and after working for several years together, they opened Rule of Thirds in February 2020. Um, what a timing. It was a month before the outbreak of COVID-19. But the duo managed to get through the challenges in the pandemic, and luckily, we can discover the great new restaurant in person now. So today we'll discuss how George and JT got into Japanese food, the ideas of Japanese food culture, how they communicate the idea at Rubel Thirst through their outstanding hospitality and unique dishes, creative programs they offer to enjoy Japanese flavors, and much, much more. But before you start, Japanese is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify, uh, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write to our baby boo. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with George Padilla and JT Vaughn. Hello, George. Hello, JT. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kiko-san. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. So, well, I've been to Okonomi uh, many times, thanks to your amazing talents and work, hard work. So it's very exciting to have you here. So first of all, where are you from and what did you eat uh, when you grew up? Uh, hi, so I'm JT. Um, I was born in Taiwan, but I moved to New York when I was really young. Uh, flew back and forth a lot. Uh, I feel I ate a really healthy mix of Eastern Western cuisines, uh, but particularly love certain things like lasagna. <laughs> okay. 
And what about you, George? Hi, I'm George Padilla, and um, I grew up and I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, so growing up in school, we had a good amount of Midwestern comfort food, macaroni and cheese. I remember loving at the school cafeteria. But uh, my family is from the Philippines. My parents are from the Philippines. And so I grew up eating some of, um, of their uh, home-style Filipino food dishes, adobo, of course, sinigang. And one thing that I really remember um, being a little bit different than the other families around us was having fish for breakfast. So um, uh, I also had an uncle from Hong Kong, so I had a chance to, to go out for dim sum at a young age and eat some Cantonese food in, in their home with his uh, homegrown garden vegetables. Mm, right. So ho- both of you, no question, you grew up in a very good, rich um, food environment. Yeah, luckily. Right. So, all right. And then uh, you met at Okonomi at a charming neighborhood Japanese breakfast and ramen place at night in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, but before you joined Okonomi, where, what did you do? Um, before I started Okonomi and food in general, I worked in wholesale for a little bit uh, right after college. But it just didn't feel right. Didn't really feel. I, I, there was no passion behind it. Um, eventually I started working in food as well, which I was much more passionate about. I'm not sure because it was like maybe hard deadlines or it's very hands-on or there's actually like the results come in much sooner. Um, but I had a great time. And then right before I started working at Yuji Ramen Okonomi, I worked at a sushi restaurant in the suburbs and to kind of developed a real love for seafood and fish in general along the East Coast. And that's kind of how I fell into Yuji Ramen and met George. Mm, right. Before working at Okonomi, um, I was working in environmental consulting, and um, I always felt like I had a bit more of a generalist approach to um, studying and to working. So I actually moved to New York um, with the intention of working in the field of environmental health and environmental health policy. Uh, so. Um, it was quite a surprise when 10, almost, almost 10 years after moving to New York, I found myself working in Japanese restaurants. But um, I always made a joke when I first arrived in New York that I picked New York over some of the other cities I was looking for potentially going to school because New York had more access to Japanese restaurants and turned out to be the whole reason why I'm still here. <laughs> right. And uh, as far as I understand, you went to uh, the Columbia University and they have a Master of Public Health. So you're really like um, the specialist of um, environmental and industrial health matters, right? Yeah, it was a pretty interesting field to get into. Um, one of the, uh, the reasons why I wanted to study public health is that in my undergrad program, I went to college in Portland, Oregon, it's a beautiful part of the country to study conservation biology and ecology. And I just, I felt that if you weren't able to convince people and convey the importance of taking care of the environment for your own health and for the health of those around you, then um, it just didn't have as salient of an argument to preserve ecosystems and habitats and take care of, um, mm-hmm. of nature. So that's why I ended up pursuing a degree in public health. And along the way, I was looking at fish consumption as a kind of nexus issue that tied together 
a lot of my different academic interests and um, and love for food. And so um, ending up working with Yuji-san, our, our mentor at Yuji Ramen in Okonomi, and his focus on fish and seafood um, helped kind of bring together a lot of my different interests in, into something that um, I felt very passionate about. I think the similar story to JT in that, um, you know, I had a good job and was enjoying being in the city and working, but I felt like at the end of the day, the product and the um, what we were creating was not something that um, inspired me. And so moving over into food service and hospitality um, really just kind of fell in love with working. Mm. Right. Well, first of all, I, I met you at Okonomi. Uh, <laughs> your eyes were sparkling and wow, <laughs> this person is really like full of hope. And uh, that was a very welcoming ambience you created at Okonomi. So, all right. So you met at Okonomi and worked closely together, meaning closely physically at the very tiny and wonderful restaurant. So what did you learn from the experience? Um, like you said, it's very, very, very tiny restaurant. Um, so we learned to work on a lot of different constraints, like how much product we could have in-house, um, how much we can actually order, and particularly like much more hands-on procurement of items, um, all different aspects of management because we didn't have the space to actually hire other people to do certain uh, aspects of the job. But one of the big things I learned after working there for a long time was how I personally view food. and how just the two of us, and I mean, obviously with our coworkers as well, but how we can actually determine how the atmosphere and the environment of the place felt. Uh, and one mm -hmm. of the, I guess, one of the really important things I, I kind of picked up there was uh, the concept of motenai, uh, how to kind of like utilize uh, different parts of a, either animal or plant and, you know, show respect for it and not kind of just waste it. Mm, right. So motenai really is a key word in Japanese cuisine, right? It's like, uh, there are different translations, but motainai means what a waste. You can't waste that or let's save it. There's some kind of like, we eat the whole thing, like from head to tail, literally. That's Japanese mindset. And also practically, uh, you do it. And JT does it too on your plate. So we're going to get into that later. But, well, that's interesting. So that's like a Yuji um, Haraguchi, the owner of Okonomi, and Yuji Ramen's tagline. It's motainai, right? I would agree that I think Motenai being kind of immersed and and uh, in that idea of Motenai approach to the cuisine, but not even the cuisine. I think one thing I really appreciate um, Yuji-san talking about is applying that um, idea of Motenai to the business as well and the way you use space. I mean, the, the restaurant at Okonomi was, um, I think, you know, maybe 20 different or 20 Okonomis could fit in the size of rule of thirds. Or let me put it another way. Okonomi was about maybe 400 square feet. And um, all of the space that we have at rule of thirds totals about 10,000 square feet. So um, I think it, it really uh, gave us a pretty unique start in working in restaurants in a place that was so spatially constrained, but finding a lot of creative and innovative ways to do more and more um, within that space. Mm, right. Actually, Yuji Haraguchi came to Japan a while ago, and then, yeah, that the usage of space 
the more you have space, the more you accumulate waste. So that's the same mindset. It's kind of like, a, what can you eliminate? Just like Japanese cuisine or sushi.、Uh, less is more, the kind of idea. So, okay. And、uh, so、um, this is a、um, very big question I wanted to ask you. So, you are not from Japan, but you are passionately and very effectively supporting Japanese food and food culture. So, what is your idea of Japanese food culture and what is special about it to you personally? That's a pretty big question.、Um, well, I'm not from Japan. Since I am from Taiwan, there's the, between the proximity and relationship between t- the two countries,、um, there has been a lot of、uh, Japanese cultural influence in my life that I didn't really recognize until、um, later on when I started reading more about like, history and, and food history as well.、Uh, but I also want to preface with that like, I feel that you know, the average person doesn't view Japanese cuisine as, like, as diverse as it truly is.、Uh, each, Each prefecture, specifically if they're further apart, is, is、uh, very different. And、um, it's kind of hard to get like a, I don't know, I feel like it's hard for me to give a general, general、uh, idea of the food culture.、Um, because, like, for instance, you know, there's, like you said, there's sushi, there's very simple, clean, how to bring out the, you know, the best of the natural flavors in the season. And then there's also the more, Uh, old school, like grandma approach of like how to make the best with what, with what you have to make other people happy.、Mm-hmm. Um, but I think overall is the idea of A, making people happy and、um, kind of not necessarily simplifying is not the right word, but keeping, keeping what your dish is as the most like clean presentation of、uh, the natural flavors.、Um, not as much, whereas Western cuisine. There's a ton of salt added to, well, not a ton, but salt is added to make whatever food item tastes like that food item. But I feel that it kind of takes away from the other subtle flavors of, you know, for instance,、uh, tomatoes. Like if you add salt, obviously it tastes more like tomatoes, it tastes more like tomatoes. But then you kind of lose certain nuances of the tomato from the tomato tasting more like tomatoes, if that makes any sense.、Mm. Right. Okay. So, what about you, George?、Um, I, for me as well, I think there's this.、Um, uh, I have a really strong affinity for, for that sense of simplicity in Japanese cuisine.、Um, I was actually just thinking of a, a line in Hannah Krishner's book that I'm reading right now called Water, Wood, and Wild Things, where she's、um, basically giving a portrait of a little.、Um, Story about an artist living in a rural town in,、uh, in Ishikawa. And there's a line about this artist,、um, her art is making、uh, traditional paper. And Hannah's writing about how there, something doesn't have to be conceptually complex to be compelling. And I think that's just, that to me sums up why I. Eat Japanese food basically every day. I mean, I even, you know, from, Oko- from the time at Okonomi,、um, Japanese breakfast is something that, that's it's kind of the only thing I eat for breakfast at home,、um, making miso soup and having just a little bit of rice and pickles and just, you know, not going too far in excess with protein or, or trying to fuss too much with it. So, I mean, aesthetically and, and 
kind of practically, that's what I'm most attracted to in Japanese cuisine. But、um, it all, it really started for me when I went away to college in Portland, Oregon. There were a few Japanese international students at, at my school, and、um, my best friend in particular kind of、uh, really introduced me to、uh, Japanese cuisine when he started cooking in the dorm. So, as you know, moving away from home for the first time, Japanese food really became my comfort food away from home, and I didn't know, like, JT is talking about there are these influences that you look back later on in life and, and you can see how it, it became part of your、um, identity in a way. And so、um, that's really how I started、uh, appreciating and, and like,、um, finding a lot of satisfaction in, in Japanese food and cuisine.、Mm. Um, but I, I also really like that there's,、um, you know, so having. Japanese cuisine become my adopted comfort food,、uh, and it invoking this familiar and wholesome feeling.、Um, I also really appreciate how there's a pretty strong defining framework to Japanese cuisine and this reliance on、um, simple building blocks like dashi and、um, koji fermentation、uh, that give washoku its, its really distinctive、uh, quality. And Uh, something else that I took away from Okonomi and、uh, Yuji san's mission was really to teach people that you can practice Japanese cuisine anywhere if you have an understanding of those foundations. And so you can practice Japanese cuisine in New York City, not using the exact same ingredients,、um, although there are some things like katsuboshi and soy sauce and miso that are imported, but it's the, the feeling and the approach that you take with what's available around you.、Mm. Right. Yeah, both of you. <laughs> It's amazing. So well said.、Um, okay. And、uh, so you opened the World Fairs in February 2020 and right before the break of COVID 19. So、uh, we'll talk about your survival story in a moment, but、um, you did survive the pandemic. So congratulations. Thank you. And, and you opened World Fairs with the team behind Sunday Hospitality, which owns and operates the fabulous restaurant called Sunday in Brooklyn. Um, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So, how did the interesting partnership begin? Well, so Adam Landsman, Todd and Annie, Jamie Young are partners、um, from Sunday in Brooklyn, from Sunday Hospitality. They lived in our、uh, neighborhood of Williamsburg, or actually, I'm the only one of the partners that wasn't living in Williamsburg. I actually lived in Prospect Heights, but spent all my time in Williamsburg. and They would come in and into Okonomi on their days off.、Um, and、uh, we got to know each other just kind of casually as them as patrons to our restaurant. And、uh, I remember when Sunday in Brooklyn first opened, this was in, I believe, November 2016. And、um, JT and I just walked in, you know, didn't have a reservation for the opening night of Sunday in Brooklyn. And They just took such good care of us. It was, you know, it was really、um, kind of overwhelming their, their hospitality that we experienced when we'd heard about them working on opening this restaurant for so long. And、um, so we really became closer、um, as friends by supporting each other's businesses. And I think that it's always important to support your friends. And though, you know, in this industry, time off is quite limited. Um, I do try to get around 
the city and and see as many of my hardworking friends as possible. And not just at restaurants, but you know there are so many people working in their respective fields. Um, and I think it just it means a lot to to support them because I wouldn't have the opportunity to be doing the the, the work that I do if it weren't for their support as well. Mm, right. And first time I got to know about uh, the partnership, I know the three <laughs> great team members of Sunday Hospitality, and I instantly thought, wow, that's a great chemistry. Uh, you guys, all five of you have very similar mindset of trying to make you happy. And not also, you have to have fun. You have to be happy to make you happy too. So it's like a really relaxed, nice, happy feeling being with you guys. So I'm so glad you did uh, open World Thirst together. So, yeah, I am anyways. too. And I think mm-hmm. it's it's kind of surprising too because we all come from such different experience and perspective and and backgrounds. But um, but yeah, I think you you kind of nailed on the head is that the intention is to to have fun and we all have a very strong sense of hospitality kind of coming first. And, um, and that's really what ties our relationship all together is, is that intention. Mm. I, yeah, it's like, I know it's a business that you have to keep running, but I also think it's uh, just a friendship and teamed up and having fun and uh, try to involve everybody, including your guests to be happy. Um, yeah, so yeah, congratulations. Thank you. All right, so we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into the fascinating and delicious concept of roof thirst. So please stay with us. The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. We cover avenues for accessing grants, loans, and financial services through federal and local government programs, as well as via nonprofits. We examine the benefits worker cooperatives present to workers, communities, and our food system, and share resources to learn more about operating under this model. We're talking to business owners who started pop-ups and became permanent during the pandemic to see what we can learn. Don't miss these episodes. Subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to TD Bank for supporting this programming. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotayama, and my guests today are JT Wong and George Padilla, the executive chef and the co-founding partner Wolf Thirst in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, New York. So, uh, so let's talk about uh, the rule of thirst. So what is the concept of rule of thirst and what would you like to achieve through the restaurant? Well, rule of thirds is an izakaya restaurant. And so when we explain what this restaurant is, it's, uh, it's really a, a place to get together with people and enjoy drinks and food and, um, and have a, a range of, of Japanese-style uh, dishes. It's not to specialize in one particular item. Um, you know, we don't just specialize in 
ramen or in sushi um, or one thing, but uh, which is hard for I think for some people to to understand when you when you think of these Japanese cuisine being compartmentalized and having um, specific restaurants that focus on a specific uh, type of food. But to us, izakaya is more the experience of getting together and drinking and eating um, around a table. Right. Okay. Well, I have to say, you really picked the essence of the good parts of Japanese, like everybody's favorite too. So um, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's hard to, it's hard to pick your favorite parts. So we, you know, I think we get away with it a little bit by being more general and uh, yeah, but I'm, JT, do you have anything to add about the, the menu? We, we talk about, or we, we've oftentimes uh, struggled with trying to categorize or break up the sections of the menu because it's, to us, it's the, the experience is, is kind of, we look at it as a whole and, and it's, uh, it's a little bit difficult to say that this dish belongs on, in this part of the menu and not the other part of the menu because we want everybody to have everything. Mm. Right. Well, actually, that's the essence of izakaya, like, you know, Japanese izakaya, there's so many izakaya restaurants and a lot of chain and inexpensive uh, chain izakaya restaurants. And the point is that you, you like a ten, group of 10 people, everybody has their favorite, and then you just enjoy and you can just order as many or as little as you want and drink and have fun. And yeah, I think you really do offer this sense of izakaya spirit at uh, Rural Thirds. Um, so... Any anything that JD do you, do you think? Yeah, like George said, I think it's it's hard for us to pinpoint because we're trying to you know everybody asks what the restaurant is, uh, cuisine wise and food wise, and sometimes it's like oh this you know people are like oh this food from this region doing this style or something, but for us it's we you know putting out an entire package, uh, how it feels, how the atmosphere is, and at the end of the day, just feeding people and making sure everybody has fun. Mm, right. And now that you mentioned the atmosphere, and for listeners who have not been to Room Thirds, can you describe the restaurant's ambience and the neighborhood? Because it's very impressive. It's almost the opposite of uh, the little tiny economy, and it's a, the very different types of charms. So can you describe the ambience? The restaurant ambience and, uh, and the environment really came together as a reflection of the collaboration uh, between um, JT and myself and our partners at Sunday Hospitality and all of the really talented creative people that we wanted to get involved with with the restaurant design. So, you know, if you were to look at at a table at Rule of Thirds, and I mean the table in the middle of a meal, and you see different pieces of pottery, maybe um, from three different local uh, artisans and mixed in with plates from uh, Japan, and water glasses from Ikea. The whole concept was for things to come together and play well together on the table. So even though um, things are coming from, you know, uh, different places and even of different um, scale of, uh, of production, it, it all comes together on the table. And, and that's kind of, not to jump ahead too much, but, and that's kind of the intention of, um, the philosophy behind the name rule of thirds mm. is that uh, what happens 
at those intersections is most compelling when you're bringing together um, different intersecting lines or different intersecting perspective. And um, the most compelling compositions come at those intersections. Mm. Right. Well, I was going to ask you that uh, the origin of rule first, it's like outward, right? So, right. So if you cut uh, the one frame into uh, like two lines, uh, vertical, horizontal, and you get um, nine uh, sections and you put the point of like center, like, you know, like I can explain really well enough, like, you know, our students, but yeah, I think that's a very cool name just to express just what you said. So yeah, naming is very clever too. So Okay, and uh, well, how many seats do you have at the rule first? Too many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for a chef, right? Probably. <laughs> yeah, I think I think JT's calculated. There's a bajillion more seats than at Okonomi, um, but we do have about just under a hundred seats in the main indoor dining room. That includes uh, six seats in front of the kitchen counter, and then. Um, depending on the setup of the bar, anywhere between 10 to 16 seats at the bar. And then the remainder of the seats are, are spread out through uh, different, you know, the different pockets of the dining room. Um, in addition to that, almost 100 seats, um, there's some three private dining rooms. We have an outdoor garden or courtyard with about 14 tables. Um, so that could be, you know, up to 60 people or so. And then we have, uh, as a COVID innovation, we built four um, really comfortable outdoor dining bungalows that got us through the winter. And they're still um, available to sit in during the summertime. And it provides a, a little bit of a, a different cozy um, semi-private experience for your, for your group. And mm -hmm. on the other side of the restaurant, behind the main dining room, we have another 4,000 square feet for event space. So uh, this summer we've done several weddings and uh, we did a really fun um, sake tasting benefit event. And so there's a lot of different ways to, to experience rule of thirds, but at the heart of it is the dining room and that's um, just under a hundred seats. Mm, right. Well, I'm sure listeners might thinking like you guys are billionaires to get at the space. But um, one another point is that it's in Greenpoint, uh, which is a cool neighborhood. And uh, it's not like a midtown Manhattan. Um, so can you maybe talk about the neighborhood, Greenpoint? So Greenpoint is in North Brooklyn. Um, it's just north of Williamsburg, um, if you haven't heard of. Greenpoint, you've probably heard of Williamsburg, but um, it's the neighborhood that we've been working in in Williamsburg for years at our years at Okonomi. Um, Sunday in Brooklyn is also located in Williamsburg. And we've always thought of, of these restaurants as really neighborhood restaurants first, you know, to be there um, on a daily basis for people that just live locally around the restaurants, although we're really lucky to be visited from. Uh, by guests from around the five boroughs and um, people visiting the city. Um, ultimately, we want to have a, uh, a very comfortable place open for um, all of our friends in the neighborhood. And 
being in Greenpoint is uh, is great because it's it's actually not quite far from Okonomi, and uh, and so we're really we love seeing our old regular guests here at Rule of Thirds as well, as well mm-hmm. as meeting regulars from Sunday in Brooklyn. Right. So so Greenpoint is um, kind of newly uh, being developed area, and whenever I go past by. Any any streets in Greenpoint, there are new places opening, and um, it's a very used to be like a lot of warehouse and factories, and it's it's a beautiful place and near the river. So, yeah, it's a really nice place, and I that spaciousness really gives that kind of Japanese natural uh, sense. So, yeah, you yes. really got nice space. Yes, like, there's a, there's a lot of really nice quiet residential areas. Um, Near the restaurant in Greenpoint, um, our particular block in Greenpoint uh, has been historically uh, industrial, and so this building that we're in, um, don't know exactly how old it is. It, it's probably around eighty to a hundred years old, and it had been used for many different things in the past. There was a bakery here called Angel's Bakery that some of the neighbors remember, and um, the current landlord and the the building owner actually operated a, a brazier factory here in the past <laughs> there was brooklyn night bazaar and um yeah so it's it's there's been a lot of different uses in this in this building um mm. and to go back to the design aspect of it um and the feeling and the ambiance of of this restaurant it was really important to soften and make this industrial space feel a lot warmer. We have unfinished concrete floors and it's open exposed rafters, but um, Lauren Day from Studio Love is Enough did a really beautiful job of of making the space feel warm and cozy by introducing a lot more wood elements and earth tones that uh, help invoke the calm feeling that we're trying to convey. Mm, Right. So, uh, yeah, by the way, you know, um, we'll talk about the food and drink menus in a moment, but uh, there's a question to you, George. So I have been always impressed by how you communicate with your guests. So it is always, I think it's very sincere and warm and they, they know, guests know that you are on their side to make you happy. So um, what's your idea of hospitality? Hmm. <laughs> it's uh it's a good question. I, for me, I, I mean, I'm still, I still try to, um, try to define hospitality myself, especially as, as, um, I'm trying to teach and pass along to staff the way that I, you know, I hope we're able to treat and take care of our guests here. Um, but ultimately I think I'd learned and developed my own, approach to hospitality um, because I, I didn't come from restaurants when I started working at Okonomi. It was the first restaurant that I'd ever worked in. But very quickly, what, what I realized and what was so inspiring about being in, in, working in Okonomi and at that place was that I saw that restaurants can create family and can create community. And it can connect you with all kinds of people from all over the world. And, mm. um, and I think hospitality really comes from at least – my hospitality, I feel like, comes from a place of mutual respect. And it's uh, it's that, you know, I really appreciate so much the 
the business and the livelihood that our guests are bringing to us by coming to patronize our restaurant. And so um, in turn, I think, you know, I want to show them the generosity and, uh, and, and the, the, give them the warm welcome that they deserve. And it really is a synergistic and kind of, um, you know, uh, mutual sharing of energy that that's what I feel. And that's why I really love being part of restaurants and, and working in this field is that, um, you know, there's a, I think I feel a lot of positive, uh, positive energy, you know, back and forth being mm-hmm. with our guests and working with our team and with, um, right. with the, the community here. Mm, right. Um, yeah, and I, I think also your, um, this is a, a totally stereotype probably, but I, I think your Filipino background, I am every single friend of mine from the Philippine, a Filipino background, they are so nice and just naturally um, welcoming and caring. So if sorry, I'm very stereotyped on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, my, my family, we would get together in St. Louis and it was, you know, a large extended family. And so our, our holiday parties were always, you know, 40 or more people. Um, and I just, I remember my, uh, how, how much my, my dad really loved entertaining at, at our house and, you know, not only family, but when you invite his colleagues from work and, um, and all of that. So it was, we always had, um, we always had, uh, a lot of, we were inviting a lot of guests to our family home. And, and, and so, um, I think of course that's something that is, has been ingrained in, in my experience growing up and, and comes out naturally, I hope in my work. Mm, right. And uh, so let's talk about food at Rope Thirds. So, um, so what do you call the style of food at Rope Thirds? Is it a classic or traditional or modern creative or somewhere in between? Or what do you think? Um, I guess it's, it's the same thing we, George, and I have a problem with trying to figure out what the cuisine is and how to describe the restaurant. But I guess the easiest answer, uh, even though it gets a lot of flack, is that it's, it's basically fusion. Like, I feel that honestly, a majority of food is fusion in general because uh, throughout you know history and different cultures, like you you share food with other people and then you welcome other people from different backgrounds at your house. You you know you feed them, they take away something, and then someone else you know they bring that food home with them, um, regardless if it's intentional or not. I feel like everybody's always hunting after you know the idea of like authentic, but nobody really you know what what's make what makes food authentic and maybe the, you know it doesn't doesn't naturally sit with the times as well um that said i think the food here is kind of like how new american is french based but we base our food more in uh, japanese background techniques and culture mm, right that's well said right it's like the food is always a moving target um, especially in the places like in New York. So, but I think your food is always based on the classic. I mean, the authenticity, and then you add some elements. So, do you have any example of uh, your creative aspects that you added to the authenticity? Um, I think a lot. Like I said, it is fusion. There are some certain dishes. I think 
particularly we do a, a kasajiru, which is a, a, a soup or stew, that, and we use uh, sake kasu, which is the lees or pressings left over for make, making sake. We get it locally from Brooklyn Curry because it's much more floral, whereas if something's shipped overseas and frozen, you lose that, that great aroma. Uh, but at the same, so traditionally, I think it's mostly pork, and I've seen also people do it with salmon. Uh, and I thought it'd be interesting to make kind of like a, a pork and bean stew. So kind of combining uh, basically Eats Me's West idea, but um, it's it's more of like an organic uh, fusion. Whereas instead of certain certain styles of food, like swap out one ingredient for one ingredient, this is more of the, the idea of making a warm, comfort, nourishing stew. Uh, it turned out super delicious, of course, because uh, we get really great kasu. Mm. But at the end of the day, we didn't really, we felt that the pork was necessary, so we tried mushrooms and then ended up making a, a vegan dish that was also, uh, I think, actually more delicious. And we kind of also want to, you know, be inclusive and welcome, you know, vegetarians, vegans, people with different dietary backgrounds. We want them to also be able to come in and have a great time. Uh, and that is what, how one of the dishes kind of was formed. Mm, right. Interesting. I, so, I tell right. guests all the time that I think this is one of the most unique and uh, surprising dishes on the menu. And and like GT mentioned, you know, we're we're so lucky to have uh, be able to work with super fresh sake kasu from Brooklyn Kura, and um, and you know to be able to pick up the kasu the morning that it's been pressed. And, and it's really just still alive with with so much of the fragrance and aroma of the sake and the, the koji enzymes still active. Um, it, it makes a huge difference, and it's it's like night and day um, compared to the 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 other imported and frozen kasu that that we were accustomed to using before. Mm, right. Yeah. So, so well, listeners who are not familiar with Brooklyn Kura, that is the first New York. Um, authentic sake brewery and uh they're doing very very well and i see their um, products everywhere and also they their sake 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 kasu as being used in many places which is great because like you said fresh sake are not available easily and um like anything frozen the bacteria is kind of dead so you don't get the, the flavor and probably it's more nutritious too so Okay, so that's uh, sake kasu, kasujiru. That's the name of the dish, which is very traditional, but uh, your twist. Another good example of, of JT's, um, I mean, he calls it fusion. And I mean, I think, I think it's accurate to, to, uh, to say, even though some people in the, the food industry think fusion is a bit of a dirty word, but his almond miso soup um, is a really great example of just a simple addition of something that exists in Western cuisine, but is not traditional or authentic to the way miso soup is made. Mm, so tell us more. Uh, I, I guess one of the things was when we were working at Okonomi Yuji Ramo with Yuji-san, uh, he had this, I remember noticed one day that he's like really into, or at least at that time he was really into eating nuts because, and adding it to certain dishes because, um, we have a ton of nuts in the West, but they're not as popular or as readable or as uh, inexpensive as they are in Japan. Uh, and then I, I guess I just stored that in my memory. And then one day 
after I left, I was helping out working at Sunday in Brooklyn. They use actually a lot of different nut butters as well as making uh, different misos out of nuts. And then I, I don't remember what happened. Maybe it's like one of those things where you just like wake up in the middle of the night and it clicks. But it's like, wait, how, why can't we just do a nut butter and miso uh, soup? Uh, mm. So we tried, I tried it out and it was like, oh yeah, it's pretty good. Obviously there's a couple of tweaks, but it's a very kind of same idea. We had to go for a slightly thicker miso soup, uh, more like the uh, more Kansai style, like more white miso and almond, but that adds like a lot of earthiness at the same time. Huh. So you mix uh, the almond uh, butter and the miso, white miso, is that what it is? Yeah, uh, specifically use uh, saikyo miso and a little bit of barley miso because the barley miso also has a little bit of that, that nuttiness behind it to kind of uh, complement each other. Mm, wow, that's genius. So it's almond. I'm sure you're going to try like walnuts or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever tried other, other flavors too? Yeah, I haven't done it yet, uh, unfortunately, due to COVID, but I was planning using maybe a hacho miso and kind of like maybe cashews or, or walnuts, something a bit a bit heavier for like different uh, different season. Mm, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm so glad Georgia gave us that. <laughs> that's a great example. Okay, so and also I have to say, uh, one of the things really is really good, your binchotan skewers are very interesting because, you know, binchotan is a Japanese charcoal uh, with a very efficient heat source. Uh, it's a charcoal, but special charcoal. And uh, you use uh, animals, um, unusual parts of animals like duck hearts flavored with soy, garlic, jalapeno, and sesame. And you have pork jiao with yuzu kosho, which is a Japanese spicy condiments, and lamb tongue, and with yakitori tare, and the Japanese karashi mustard. So these are, you know, like we talked about motainai, uh, don't waste it. That the mindset is really uh, showing, showcased in this pincho dan skewer dishes. And I, I know they're so delicious. So uh, that was one of the features I think uh, we should know about on the menu at World of Thirst. One of the, one of the ideas when we first designed the menu for the restaurant, uh, one of the things I, I, I thought about a lot was like, there are a ton of great yakitori restaurants. So even if we try to do yakitori, it, to me, it didn't make sense. Um, you know, there's a t everybody else can do it better, and I don't want to put out a you know a sub kind of a subpar product. There are people who've been training, you know, ten, twenty years, and then also brought in from Japan to open these kind of places. And business sense, it didn't make any sense. And also, just like as as creatively, it didn't make sense as well. Uh, so we started trying to you know play around with different different um, different plants and animals. Uh, use different different combinations, and I guess one of the things of like like obviously Georgian are Japanese, but one of the benefits of that is that we can kind of stretch out a bit more and uh, not essentially not get not get flack for for doing doing things uh, out of the norm. Um, but mm. usually the offcuts are the things we we kind of prefer eating all the time, and also the whole matanite uh, concept. It's like it it just kind of came together naturally right yeah and also i think uh, that kind of out of the box idea inspires japanese chefs in japan too so yeah i really think this is your creativity is very inspiring to all of us and 
I mean, use of these organ meats, not to mention they're highly nutritious and we tend to lack that kind of specific vitamins and minerals. So yeah, you're creating uh, healthy dishes too. So that's awesome. Okay, so I, I want to talk about uh, brunch menu too, because you really uh, showcase very unique uh, Japanese items. That's, um, you know, like a Japanese breakfast set, that's roasted market fish. And uh, hotokeiki, that's a Japanese souffle pancake, and Japanese sandwiches, so which is a little different. So maybe you can detail, uh, tell us some details about your brunch menu. So the, the brunch menu at Rule of Thirds, um, at the core of it, is based around Toshoku set meals. And um, initially, we were thinking of focusing on bento and had a difficult time finding just the right bento vessel for the meal and for to fit into the restaurant and to fit into um, service. Um, so these teishoku meals are uh, meant to have, you know, everything that you need to have a complete and balanced meal. Um, there are a yakizakana, roasted fish version. We have um, a chicken meatball tsukune version. Uh, there's a vegan version with shimeji mushroom and um, barley miso. And uh, the, so those are the kind of the main attraction for the brunch menu. But um, to also introduce, you know, a little bit of, of uh, the style of eating at an izakaya for the daytime, there's a lot of things that are great for sharing. So some of the dinner menu crosses over to the brunch menu, uh, karage, is on the menu and some of the, the side smashed cucumbers. Um, but exclusive to the daytime is are some um, sandos, so some milk bread sandwiches that we get the bread from a, uh, a relatively new local vendor, um, native bread. And um, sandwiches are, are always um, fun for people to, to share, to get as, as their own. And for the sandwiches we have a tamagoyaki, and also um, a chicken katsu. Mm, right. Yeah, I, I really wanted to uh, talk about brunch menu because, like, you know, Japanese-style breakfast set menu, like you said, um, that's the concept of Ichiju Sansai, is that's the most balanced style of meal. One rice, one soup, and three small dishes, or the one large dish or two small dishes. So... Yeah, it's a really represents the healthy part of Japanese cuisine. And also, I think, you know, Japanese sandwiches, it, it's not well known enough in this country, but I saw many um, uh, Olympic journalists, reporters who went to Tokyo this time, uh, reported a uh, number of times on social media, their Japanese sandwiches experience was crazy, <laughs> like so fluffy bread and just delicious. And... Uh, yeah, I heard that uh, Anthony Bourdain, um, he used to go to Japan and he would always go to Japanese convenience stores and eat Japanese sandwiches because it's so good. So uh, I'm so glad you're featuring those items at uh, Ropethers. I mean, the milk the milk bread itself is just so like so soft. It's almost almost unreal sometimes. <laughs> yeah, Flavi. And it's, you said you get, you get from local bakery? Yeah, so uh, the one we get is a little bit um, denser than, or denser and um, harder than uh, more standard milk bread. 
uh, which kind of it, it kind of fits our sandals a bit better. Uh, it's a it's kind of help acclimate people um, towards the style of um, of sandals, but also it holds up a bit better to uh, the our our sandal applications of like kind of a bit more saucy and gives like more textural contrast for us as well. Mm, okay. So by the way, so in Japan, sandwiches are called sando. <laughs> so it's a uh, sando is just Japanese style sandwiches. Okay. And uh, so I think we should talk about your amazing sake list. So you have about 30 sake labels on your list. So, um, so I'd imagine you have many customers uh, who are not familiar with Japanese sake, considering how modern and will thirds look. So, so what's the theme of sake list and what kind of, um, you know, customer do you have in mind? The general theme of the sake list at Rule of Thirds is sake for natural wine lovers. Um, I, through working at Okonomi, was really lucky to be able to uh, to meet some amazing sake importers and distributors, and uh, and through them, had a chance to meet um, several sake brewers and and um, brewery owners and tojis, and was really inspired by their stories and their craft and had a chance to visit um, several sake breweries over uh, trips to Japan. Um, And so professionally I was, or for work and professionally I was um, drinking and tasting and really enjoying sake. Um, After work a few years ago, I started to get more into enjoying um, wine. So through restaurants like, at the Four Horsemen, also in Williamsburg, um, really started to to branch out, and uh, and wine started becoming my go-to or beverage outside of the workplace. Um, so, in opening the restaurant here and thinking about combining, you know, this kind of professional um, experience with sake with kind of uh, extracurricular passion and love for wine. Um, I thought that it'd be fun to frame uh, the list as sake for natural wine lovers. And a big portion of our menu here is um, is to introduce people to namazake. So namazake is unpasteurized sake that has a little bit more of a surprising liveliness to it. And they can have a little bit more zip and electricity to it. And I think namazake serves to be a really great gateway to um, to sake for people that have not had a chance to taste many different sakes side by side. Mm. And the goal is to find something for everyone. Um, I think that there's a place for both sake and wine at the table at the same time. And so, you know, my, my hope is that people will appreciate sake with its richness in umami and amino acids, um, and how it's such an effortless pairing with uh, Japanese cuisine and the Japanese palette of flavors were in the food. And then um, my approach for wine is that the wine almost functions as the pickles on the table. So, you know, in choosing wines that are um, really bright and have uh, also a lot of acidity to them, low in tannin um, and uh, refreshing, I think it, it makes space for you to enjoy both wine and sake together at the same time. Mm, right. Interesting. 
Right. Well, that's the keyword, right? Natural wine, natural drink. And oh, oh by the way, uh, for listeners who are not familiar with sake too much, um, sake is a very natural product by nature. So there's no additives. It's just pure ingredients. So every uh, sake, unless it's really like, I, I don't know, it has to be pure, unless it's like a modified, somewhere, somewhere <laughs> created uh, artificial product, which I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not aware of. Uh, sake is natural, but namazake and pasteurized, uh, like George said, it's a very lively um, product. So it's really, the brightness is very um, easy for non-sake lovers to love. So that's exciting. Yeah, um, I think namazake is a really great starting point. Um, as I mentioned, it's a really uh, good gateway into explaining, um, you know, a, a different style or range of sake. Um but to me, you know, pasteurization is, is not uh, the end-all or be-all of, of sake that's worthwhile drinking or, or you know, even a natural sake. Um, what I've really uh, enjoyed showing people and helping to educate on is a little bit of the, the traditional yeast starter methods that I think also um, give certain sakes a totally different character. And so mm. traditional yeast starter methods... Are, such as Kimoto and Yamaha and Bodaimoto, um, I think there's uh, there's some really great comparisons to be made between those um, old school styles of sake and uh, the the new school Sokujo method sakes that are um, that are much much more common. And I think they're all styles that are worth drinking. But it's great to have um, you know we have some thirty different sakes available to pour by the cup with the carafe and tasting side by side and together in the same experience is really um, where you start to learn. Mm, right. So instead, um, it's not just uh, the unpressurized fresh sake, but like you said, uh, Yamaha, Ikimoto, those uh, really old classic style tend to be labor intensive. So that's why there is a trend. People didn't produce those, but there is a kind of, trend that reversed um, people just going for more flavor, more kind of sometimes funky, more layers. That's the style of sake you're serving at uh, uh, World Thirst, right? Correct. Right. Okay. A lot to discover. Uh, as far as I counted, you have uh, around 30 sake labels on the list. So yeah, I have to keep going back. Um, yeah. But um, so you have created uh, this fascinating restaurant, um, that showcases the really essence of Japanese culture. Uh, but, you know, you went through the crazy COVID um, challenges. So how did you deal with the challenges uh, due to the pandemic? Well, um, the challenges aren't over yet. I mean, we're still, uh, <laughs> That's true. We're still in the middle <laughs> of, of the pandemic, but certainly um, we're in a better place than we were um, a year ago or more than a year ago or right after the restaurant opened. Um, and, and it's been, it's been quite challenging and, and, um, but, you know, our approach has been to, uh, always to follow the science and the public health experts and to learn from our peers and to, you know, to be flexible. Um, it's, there've been just a number of, constant changes that we've had to make and i i feel like we've 
reopened the restaurant four times or so, just in the the different iterations of of being outdoor only and then reopening indoors and um, and then indoors being closed for a portion of time. And uh, so it's I I'm still processing all of the challenges, that's for sure. But um, we have been able to make it through this really difficult period because of the the tenacity of, of all of the people working here and involved with this project. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, it, we're, we're able to still be here um, because of our team and uh, because without that, you know, this restaurant wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to, to reopen. Um, mm. So very grateful for, for that and about taking care of this restaurant family. Right. Yeah. Right. It's so not glad. very, not very much of specifics, but there's, there's a lot, you know, certainly the, uh, the PPP program um, helped us bring staff back and, and keep staff on when even the volume of business was, was not, um, you know, enough to, to sustain, you know, our, our payroll at the, the reduced levels of capacity that we're operating at. Um, so, you know, a little bit of help along the way has been uh, critical. A good relationship with our landlord has also been critical in renegotiating our lease during the pandemic and during the shutdown when we weren't even operating the restaurant to make sure that we had um, a favorable lease that allowed us time to ramp up and to get back on track and uh, and also set us up for, uh, you know, a little bit of a long-term stability in the space. So um, those are all really important factors leading to um, us being able to continue. Mm, right. So, like you said, it's COVID is not over yet, but I think vaccination rates keeps going up. So hopefully, hopefully, um, even the Delta variant is going to disappear soon. Um, so assuming that's going to happen, what are your plans and dreams? Um, plans and dreams. I guess get this, get the restaurant back in full running mode. Um, for me, one of my one of my dreams, and one reason I felt, I guess, a double back. One reason I really like uh, Japanese food culture and cuisine is it basically everybody's always working to improve, no matter how how small the gain is. Like uh, before I started cooking, I was really into Muay Thai, and then or martial arts are in general. And Bruce, and one of the quotes that Bruce Lee had always stuck with me is that uh, something along the lines of like, I don't. I don't fear the man who's practiced a thousand or ten thousand kicks once, but I fear the man who's practiced one kick a thousand times. And I feel that's very the a the hard work, but also just the the drive to be better and and work harder and make uh, and just basically work harder to be better. And I, that's kind of one thing I've noticed that a lot of people that have gotten to cooking are not uh, into as much anymore. They're not into putting the hard work and they want to do and learn a, a thousand different things. Whereas I remember when I started doing sushi, I, I I don't know how many cucumbers I destroyed practicing, but doing katsuramuki, like every day I would go in, they'd give me 20 cucumbers and then just practice for like two hours and 
And that kind of like that drive and perseverance, uh, I, I kind of hope to to pass on to the next generation of uh, kitchen staff, at least. Mm, wow. I'm so glad I asked you this question. Hey, um, I mean, in the Japanese mindset, it's called uh, sometimes Kaizen, meaning uh, permanent eternal improvement. And I think that itself is the essence of uh, love for what you do, right? Because if you don't, you can't have that. And it's almost like um, you are asking yourself well, what value you can create, not just for yourself, but for whole society. So that's the kind of mindset I think I really respect you have, JD. Um, what about you, George? Um, <laughs> well, um, there is, I mean, the, the dream is to, to keep rule of thirds growing. And I, I think, like JT said, just incremental um, improvements and developments are, are something that, um, that really drives all of us. And, you know, I'm really striving for this place and this entire venue to provide a really dynamic experience. I think, you know, something that the way we've um, we've designed and thought of the experience of visiting this restaurant is to have a little bit of a journey and discovery along the way. And I mean, even just walking into the courtyard, um, there's you know there's a sense that you're you're coming out of the streets of New York City and, and into a place that can hopefully be transportive for you. And so taking that um, intention of creating a dynamic experience with discovery and journey, but then applying that to the trajectory of the business and seeing what more we can do in this box that we have. Um, we have a new project uh, called Bin Bin Sake, um, where we intend to open a sake bottle shop and a sake retail shop here um, that is, you know, forthcoming pending uh, application for new retail permit to sell sake out of a new space that's uh, a new space that we signed an, a new lease on in, in the building. Um, but building up to that, you know, we're developing a, um, a sake tasting program where guests can come in and experience sake, not just through a restaurant or bar setting, but really through a conversation um, with myself and with um, some of our servers and our our, um, our sake team here at the restaurant. Um, and so, you know, my, my dream is for everybody to fall in love with sake and to be able to throw a big sake festival here and invite brewers to see um, how much people are really engaging with sake here in, in New York City and in Brooklyn. That would be a dream for me to, to show them how much we appreciate um, all the hard work that, that they do. Mm, right. I'm sure that shop, new shop is going to shorten the distance between sake and uh, general customers, especially you explaining all those things with your sparkling eyes. So yeah, that'd be really amazing. Um, okay, so where can we find you online and on social media? Uh, the Rule of Thirds Restaurant Instagram account is thirdsbk. That's T-H-I-R-D-S and then B as in Brooklyn, K as in Kings. 
And um, Bin Bin Sake also has an Instagram. It's just Bin Bin, B-I-N, B-I-N, Sake. Um, but personally, if you'd like to find me online, um, although I'm, I am not active on Instagram, there is an account there under Geopad, G-E-O-P-A-D. Okay. And uh, JT, do you have any personal account? Uh, yeah, um, it's uh, the number two L-E underscore JT on Instagram. But I would like to redirect all my uh, my PR stuff to George because he speaks way more eloquently than I can. And yeah. <laughs> okay. We're, we're right. bo- you should follow JT's stories, though. JT does post really... Uh, really really great snippets throughout the uh throughout the day throughout the weeks of uh, behind the scenes at the restaurant oh that sounds fun okay all right so uh, thank you so much for joining us today uh jd george so uh keep us posted and hopefully you can have you back on the show sometime in the near future thank you so much all right, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics to our guests, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or akikotama.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Aman Wang, and actually today is Amanda's last episode with Japanese. So uh, thank you so much for your hard work and uh, good luck. And so uh, also, we'll take a summer break for the rest of the August. So uh, we look forward to seeing you in September. And thank you for listening. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Good radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.